Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. All right, great to have you with us here on the GM Shop. Lots to get into. More Hugh Jackson talk. That's right. Not just book titles, but what's happening with his career. Justin Fields in the NFL draft. Why is his draft stock slipping as you're building up to the draft? And, of course, a look back at Julian Edelman and his contributions to the New England Patriots and the National Football League. But we begin with an excellent article Mike's colleagues did at The Athletic. Really in-depth and provocative look at the Eagles' downfall under Jeffrey Lurie and Howie Roseman, over the past two months, the Athletic speaking to current and former Eagle staffers representing a cross-section of departments and viewpoints granted anonymity to be allowed to speak about sensitive topics describing an environment characterized by second-guessing, paranoia, and a lack of transparency. We'll go through it step-by-step, step, Mike, but here's the first one because you learn about Doug Peterson. Jeffrey Lurie wanted Doug Peterson to be more analytical. Over time, the Tuesday meetings wore on Peterson. Lurie has long considered the organization at the forefront of innovation. The impression among Peterson supporters in the building was that Lurie's weekly questions were largely based on post-game reports produced by the team's analytics staff. Sources say Peterson was beaten down by the constant second-guessing. They treated him like a baby. Let's start there with the head coach. Your thoughts on the way Doug Peterson was treated? Well, I think this. I think, you know, when they hired him, I mean, let's be real honest. They hired him. He was uh, in Kansas City. Andy Reid kind of talked him into hiring him. Uh, and he really didn't have any other options. And so they really are. Uh, I think the way that you could interpret this is the reason they want someone without a lot of cachet is because they want to make a head coach. They're trying to make a head coach see the game through how they see it, right? And and that's a really hard thing to do because I can remember talking to somebody who was interested in buying an NBA team. And I said, you know, if you want to do all the things you want to do with an NBA team, you'll have to fire everybody because you can't get people to change their behaviors. You just can't. Uh, if you want to, if you want them to think like you're thinking, you've got to get them to, you got to hire people that think like that because you'll never change people. That's the hardest thing to do. And so I think this is really about they hired Doug Peterson. They knew he wasn't really able to do. You know, he wasn't really ready to be a head coach. I mean, let's make no mistake about that. And so they wanted to build a head, they wanted to build him as their head coach. And so they wanted him to be more analytical. They wanted him to call more pass plays. They wanted him to use the 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 information that they had at their disposal to help them, to help him to do his job. And once again, this comes down to they want the organization to carry the head coach, not the head coach to carry the organization. So, you know, I, I think that's the start. And I think Doug took the job because he said, you know, why? And once I win, you know, they're not going to tell me what to do. Well, you know, he never really was bought into what they were doing. He was just doing it because that's what they wanted to do. And as a time wore on and they won a Super Bowl, that probably was the worst thing that happened to him because they won a Super Bowl. And one side thinks the reason they won is because of of how they built the coach, and the other and the coaching side thinks they won because of the coaching. So it, it's just a combustible situation that operates all the time, and it becomes a real problem. 
So that's the focus with Doug Peterson. And like you said, the problems in terms of who gets credit, where blame lies. And then it gets up, obviously, to Harry Roseman, the guy who has the final say over the roster. Any draft pick, trade, or signing, good or bad, is on his record yet. Behind the scenes, lingering ambiguity about how decisions are made. For an organization that publicly touts collaboration as it's offering a TED Talk on intra-office cohesion, the lack of collaboration became a common refrain among those with knowledge of the decision-making process. One source described the analytics team as a clandestine black ops department that doesn't answer to anybody except the owner. This has come up before on the shuffle, Mike. We talked to the Eagles and have someone to pay the piper. And I said to you, well, hopefully eventually they'll look at Howie Rosen, some of these bad moves he's made, the lack of receivers. Um, you look at the way that the offensive line has just fallen apart. And you said, that's not going to happen. He's too close to Jeffrey Lurie. According to multiple sources, the answer is that Roseman has made himself essential to Lurie. This is a survivor. This is someone who understands how to stay close with the most important person in the building. I'm not sure whether that's admirable on some level, but I'm like, wow, okay, I guess you're going to be a survivor. Or it's disappointing that his lack of communication is just so bad. Well, I think let's start with collaboration. I mean, because that's what the Eagles really want to do. They want to be a collaborative organization. And I think... You know, that I think just the essence of that is wrong. Look, when you look at these draft rooms, and I'm writing about this for The Athletic today, when you look at these draft rooms and you see all these people in the room and you really, it's almost looks like the Copacabana when, you know, in, 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 in Goodfellas, when, when he comes in, when Harry comes in and he gets the table right in front and they move <laughs> the thing right there. It's like, that's what the draft rooms look like. They're so packed with peoples and coats and ties and... You know, and, and this whole notion of building collaborative efforts uh, is really kind of goes against anything that you make good decisions from. And, and here's why. So, you know, and I wrote this for the Daily Coach today, which is two, which are Wednesday morning. We're talking about uh, decision making. And I've been spending a lot of time. I listened to Daniel Kahneman, who's an expert on decision making. Annie Dukes had a presentation with him the other day. And and they were talking about what makes decisions go bad. Like, and the NFL is really, is truly the NFL drafts a petri dish for how to make bad decisions. And I say that because I've made my share of bad decisions and I behaved in a manner that violates a lot of the, the principles Kahneman talks about. So making bad decisions, you have bias that goes into making bad decisions, confirmation bias, you know, all the different forms of bias that affect your, your decision. But also you have noise, the noise that is outside. And what oftentimes when people hear the term noise, they think it's coming from the public. It's coming from Mel Kuyper or Todd McShay, the noise outside that infiltrates into your organization. But it's really not. That noise isn't from the outside. That noise is from the inside. That noise is from when you have too many people a part of a decision. And you say, well, isn't that really smart to have a lot of people? Yeah, it is, but not everyone's equally informed, right? So if you were to go take a, a uh, if you were to go to add a claim with an adjustment, or you, let's just say you went to a, uh, a, a underwriter and an underwriter was going to look at a loan and you had five different underwriters, they would come out with five different risk assessments of the loan. All of them would come up, even though they're all educated on loans, even though they're all educated on underwriting, they would have five different, no one would be similar. There would be no consensus. There would be no collaboration based on this. Kahneman's done the research. And so what happens is for when you're like Howie, and you're like the Eagles who want to build this collaborative effort as an organization, it's impossible because you're getting information from people that are not equally informed. 
So, and what I wrote about today for the Daily Coach is you go to an art museum, AD, and you walk around the Louvre and you see this painting and you say, oh my God, that painting is beautiful. It's a masterpiece. It's incredible. It's worth, it's, it's worth, it, you, there's no value on it. It's, it's, you couldn't pay for it. And then you see another painting and they say, yeah, this painting is worth $12 million. You say, but that looks like crap, you know? But when the person explains how, they reach that conclusion of why that painting is worth so much, whether it's the strokes, whether it's the paint, whether it's the frame, whether it's the style, whatever it is. You know, whenever they explain how they think, all of a sudden you said, yep, I get it. And what happens in NFL draft rooms and what happens to this collaborative effort is you get all these people coming in with their ideas, but no one never explains how they think, or why they think. They only explain what they think. I think this guy's a first-rounder. I think this guy will make our team better. I think this guy will be a starter for us. How did you reach that conclusion? Tell me why you think that way. No one ever does that in the draft room. Tell me why you think that player can do those things. We don't have, we don't have the art guide in, in draft rooms. We don't have somebody to explain why. And therefore, all this collaborative effort basically ruins drafts. And so what Howie and, du- and Jeffrey are trying to do is they're trying to include everybody, but then they have their own separate vision of what they think is the right because they think they are the true experts of what they need. And then they're going to weigh the balance. They're the baker, right? So I, I want two parts analytics. I want one part coaching. I want this part that. But yet they're under the disguise that we're all collaborative. And what happens is it really pisses people off. It creates such discontent within an organization because there's dishonesty in what they're doing, not intentionally, but in the way the action. So when they turn in the card for Jalen Hurts and nobody in the room saw him be average, nobody in the draft room thought he was going to get drafted in the second round or thought he was on, you know, but he was on Howie's board. He wasn't on the main board. Then everybody's resentful. And that's why you have articles like this. And it becomes a real issue. And so the draft, the people that do the best jobs in the draft have very few people involved. They take input from everybody. They value the input based on the knowledge of the person writing the reports but they also understand that we can only really have one expert. There's only one tour guide of the art museum. And I think that's really what, to, what you're getting here. And, and oftentimes, because the owner wants to be the tour guide of the art museum, Jeffrey Laurie wants to make the final decision, then you're going to have a lot of times where you get, then you fall into the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is people think they know, but they really don't. So it just kind of overlays. It's truly a Petri dish of why, how to make bad decisions. The NFL draft is a Petri dish. Because look, here's the thing. In every NFL draft room, there's three types of people. There's the politician, okay? He's the guy over in the back of the room who's wants to always be on the right side. See, I told you that guy was going to be a good player. I told you that guy's a good player. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got the prosecutor, right? Who's And no idea. Oh, that guy, he's no good. He's no good. He's no good. You know, or, or I told you this, or, you know, he's going to destroy any good idea, right? And so you got the politician, you got the prosecutor, and then you got the preacher, 
And that's the guy that preaches what he wants. And he could do it really well. The Kenneth Copeland of the draft room. You know, I mean, Kenneth Copeland's preaching that there's no coronavirus and people actually are paying to fund his private planes. You know, it's like, seriously, like when you're a good preacher, you can convince anybody of anything. Remember, redemption comes with a debt. So, you know, you can do that. And and so I think that that's ultimately the combination of those things, along with all this other factors, is why people have bad drafts. If I ever was to run an NFL draft, it would probably be with very few people in the room and very few people on the scouting staff. Because the more people you have, the more you try to build a collaborative effort and the less it becomes effective. Yeah. Like you said, it's one thing to have everyone's voice, but ultimately one voice has to stand above. And for the Eagles, Roseman gave up all these draft picks to get players like Golden Tate, Jannard Avery, Darius Slay, because he said, okay, the Super Bowl window is there. They only made 10 total picks in 2018 and 2019. And to wrap a bow on it, in the end, he could have moved on from all three, but instead got rid of two of the three, meaning Doug Peterson, he likes on a personal level, but Lurie was frustrated by the offense and Peterson's decisions with the coaching staff. Wentz actually wanted a fresh start. The Eagles believed strongly they could fix his flaws, get them back to the Super Bowl, but they had enough leverage to keep him. Instead, they said, you know what? We'll get the draft compensation. We'll get the cap in order. And then they keep Roseman. And as one source said, the surprise factor is that it happens so quickly. Perhaps it's not surprising given the culture of the organization. And that's the final note I wanted to ask about the Eagles. A point that you hammer continuously is all about culture. And in terms of the culture at the Eagles, if you read this article in The Athletic, you can see that it's flawed in multiple ways. No, it is. I mean, and, and, and the challenge that they have is they're trying to build this consensus. They're trying to get everybody on the same page. And you can do it in an offseason when there's no games. But once game starts... And you start having those meetings and you start, they want to do this or they want to do that. And then most of the veteran coaches on the staff, they don't want anything to, you know, like, you know, there is such a hard way to build cohesiveness in the NFL teams. It's really, really challenging because you have so many independent contractors within an organization and, and you have these people that just want to run their team, do what they do. And so it becomes a real issue and it's hard to build harmony within that. And, and the bigger these staffs have gotten, the less harmony you can build. It's just, it's just a fact. And, you always think more will get you better ideas. You know, we need more people around. We need more advisors. Yeah. Well, the problem is that just goes against what Kahneman believes is that's more noise. You're just adding more noise. I mean, the Eagles are, are, are clearly are clearly a team that loves to listen to people. They have outside. I mean, they had what last year they had John Dorsey on the outside evaluating players for them. They love more opinions. And they make the huge mistake of getting just they're getting more noise. And and the more noise you get, the worse decisions you're going to make. Right, exactly. Sometimes you just got to cut out the noise, trust your instincts and go from there. Great article once again from Mike's colleagues at The Athletic. We move on to a Hugh Jackson update. Thanks to Joel Sherman of the New York Post who texted me two other options for the book. Hugh got fail and the Jackson dive. Eddie George, whose post-playing careers include a short stint on Broadway, now becomes the head coach at Tennessee State University, reportedly looking to hire a two-time former NFL head coach of the program's offensive coordinator. Via footballscoop.com, George wants to hire Hugh Jackson to run the team's offense. Jackson coached the Raiders and Browns combined record 11-44-1. and I remember about Eddie George being an actor. Like, he was played Billy Flynn, the National Touring Company of Chicago back in 2016, now back in football I was surprised that Eddie's making this move. Of course, obviously a great running back. But what do you think here, Mike? Eddie George and Hugh Jackson together at Tennessee State. I mean, if I'm Hugh, I, I think, you know, you were up for the P- Pittsburgh offense coordinator job. You didn't get that. You got to ask yourself, am I going to get 
how do I get back in this thing? What do I do to get back in? You're going to write a book. That's not going to get you back in. People are going to say the book is just your way of blaming somebody else. And so if I were, if I were talking to you, you know, I'd say, hey, look, go, go coach, go coach. You know, nobody wants to hear that, you know, nobody wants to believe that. But if you go and take a job and coach and are successful, they can't deny it. You know, you can't deny. I think I think Lane Kiffin's proven that, right? I mean, look at Lane Kiffin's career. He goes to Tennessee. He leaves the Raiders. He goes to Tennessee. He leaves Tennessee, goes to USC, gets fired at USC. He's kind of maligned. He goes to Alabama, kind of gets himself going, can't get a head coaching job from Alabama, takes the Florida Atlantic job. And next thing you know, now he's back at the head coach at the University of Mississippi. I mean, the guy kept coaching. The guy kept working. I think that's what you have to do because we're all going to go through these ups and downs in our career. We're all going to go through these, these highs and these lows, and you can't talk your way out of them, which is what Hugh's trying to do. Uh, the Jackson, the, the Hugh dive, I, th- I think that's for the Hugh Jackson dive. I think that's a pretty good one, AD. I kind of like that one. <laughs> I was about to say, these lists are never going to stop coming, so thanks to Joel for that. It just doesn't stop. Um, we'll see what happens with Hugh, and hopefully we can get him on the pod at some point, but NFL draft talk. We talked earlier about the Eagles and issues they made with the draft. Justin Fields. So this is interesting, Mike. You know, the Guardian had this article about him embodying the NFL future. So why is his draft stock slipping? So Fields, perhaps sliding down the draft. Again, it's all speculation, but the league's looking for that total package, right? The next Aaron Rodgers, Dak Prescott. He had more than 5,000 passing yards, threw 63 touchdowns, nine interceptions, averaged just shy of 11 yards per pass attempt, had another 15 touchdowns with his legs during his two years at Ohio State. We saw him play really well, threw for six touchdowns against Clemson's vaunted defense, college football playoff. I can give you all the analytics and all the stats. But in your mind, when he's being evaluated by analysts, and this is presupposing by the fact that he's not going to be one of the first two picks, um, what do you think about Justin Fields and where there could be some potential issues? First of all, I think this whole notion that you're sliding is ridiculous because who said you were there? <laughs> who put you there? Right. Like, really, who put you there? Like, you know, I mean, I, I, Stephen A. Smith is complaining that he's sliding. Like, who, who put him up there? Like, I, I don't know. Like, this is my whole problem with the draft is, you know, everything that most of the teams do when it comes to the draft is they sit there and they and they talk about what round this guy would go into. Well, just think about this for a second, right? If you're sitting in, say you're in Ohio State in May of last year, you're sitting there and you're writing a report on a player, of any player, how can you accurately in May, when the draft's 11 months away, how can you accurately predict what round this guy will go in? You don't even know who's coming out for the draft. You don't even know you don't even know who the contemporaries are at the position. You don't understand. You haven't seen the horizontal board, which is the board of all the players of all the positions. You only know the one player in the vertical board. You haven't seen all of her. So you're basically shooting, you know, you're shooting blanks. And so, like, who made them? Who put Justin Fields as the number one? Was it Mel? Was it Todd? You know, was it Daniel Jeremiah? I mean, that may be to them, but that doesn't mean they're slipping. If they're slipping to them, then you could have an argument. But who, when a player starts to slip, I never really understand where's the slipping coming from? Because you don't really know it. You know none of the 32 teams' draft boards. So how could you possibly slip? How could it ever be a slip? And I, and I just think to me, it's really unfair to Fields that people start saying he's slipping when, in fact, how do you even know he was not there? I mean, there's a lot of teams that like Fields. You know, I think Fields would be a top 10 pick. I don't think that's slipping for the kid at all. Now, if you said to me, 
he, you know, somebody like Zach Wilson or Mac Jones more than Fields. Once again, it comes back to let's go to the art museum. You know, I hate this painting, but it's worth $14 billion. I like this painting. It's only worth $4 billion. You know, like it's the subjective area of who's grading it. That's not slipping. That's just people making decisions based on what they think is best for them. It doesn't mean it's necessarily best for everybody. It's what's best for them. So today, Justin Fields will work out. And I'm sure that, you know, he'll have a lot of people. I know the Patriots will send a, 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 a foray of people there. I wouldn't be surprised if Josh McDaniels went there to watch him work out because, I mean, they're going to do everything in their power to see if he can meet the threshold of what they're going to need at their position. Because, you know, it's not that he's slipping. He may be in range. And if he gets in range, you better make sure you've done all your homework on him and you feel really comfortable. They did all their homework on Lamar Jackson. You know, they did, they did, they felt like at that time maybe it wasn't perfect. So they didn't make, they didn't make, everybody thought they were going to make the move, me included, but they didn't. So I, I, I really, I think it's unfair to kids when we start talking about who's slipping and who's not. I think Fields will demonstrate today what he can do. He's got tape to back him up and, it's got to feel the comfort of what the player, what the team wants from the player. Yeah, and comfort is at least consensus. Lawrence, the Jags, and then after that, could be three quarterbacks taken, four quarterbacks taken, Panay Sewell in the mix, all the rest of it. And to that point, um, let's talk with the Patriots, what they could be doing. Because Tom Curran, Patriots reporter, thinks that obviously Lawrence is number one. After that, there are, quote, three receivers, a tight end, and two offensive tackles before the next quarterback, and the Patriots should let the draft come to them. Phil Perry, another reporter, expressed that drafting a quarterback higher in the draft might be worth the risk. Here's a clip from Tom Curran's Patriots Talk podcast, thanks to NBC Sports Boston. And so to me, the best way to try to get a great quarterback is to either be willing to pay for one if he comes onto the market, which very rarely happens, or draft high enough to ensure that you have a better chance of hitting on one. It doesn't ensure that you get a great one because again, they're all crapshoots and I will maintain that. But I think we all would acknowledge that the higher you pick, the better chances of you hitting get. It's deep. I just, don't think, I just don't think, I think they're close to 12 through 20. Most of those guys, maybe they might be They're all, but they're five first round guys, which is rare. How do you see it, Mike? When you, last week, you quoted Bill Washington. It doesn't matter where we pick them. It matters how they play. What do you think of what they're describing there? Well, I, I think this. I think, you know, people say, well, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, Lombardi, because, you know, if if you say it doesn't matter where we pick them, it matters how they play, it still matters on what you think, right? Like, Walsh would never take a player at 15 that he didn't have the verbiage next to the player's name. Like, for example, uh, let's take Kyle Trask as an example. You know, maybe there's a team in the league that think Kyle Trask has the abilities that can create mismatches versus most opponents in the league. He's a featured player on the team, has the impact of the, and, uh, on the outcome of the game. No one player can take him out of the game. Each week, he has a consistent level of performance. He plays at a championship level in most situations. He rates at the top 10 at his positions. Let's say someone in, in the Patriots organization, and I don't know this at all, I'm just speculating, gave Kyle Trask that grade, okay? And if the Patriots pick Kyle Trask at, at 15, most people would say they reached on him, but yet it would subscribe to the Walsh theory that it doesn't matter where we pick him, it matters how we play. But if the verbiage was of a player that was you know, a, a reserve, a marginal backup player, and you pick them at 15, that's not, that's not, doesn't matter where we pick them, it matters how they play. 
that those two have to be in harmony. And in that harmony, it doesn't matter what the media thinks. It matters what the harmony is between what we're seeing and what we're grading. So when I say it doesn't matter where we pick them, it matters how, we, how they play, how we define how they're going to play does matter. So when you're picking at 15, you better get a player that you believe. I think what Tom Curran's saying is absolutely right. I think this draft is filled with guys that, you know, when you sit there and look at it, the Patriots have to weigh the horizontal board more than the vertical board. Okay, so in every draft room, there's two boards. We never talk about this. You'll never hear this conversation ever on any of the draft shows. Herbie ain't getting to no horizontal board. Herbie don't even know what the horizontal board is, right? So, like, there's no way they're going to talk about it. The horizontal board is the players at the position as it relates to different position. Is Justin Fields better than Sewell, the tackle from Oregon, right? Okay, so how does that horizontal board set up, right? Somebody's got to evaluate the horizontal board. Well, the problem is most, not all the scouts have seen all the players on the horizontal board. How does Nigel Harris, the running back, compare to Rashard Slater, the tackle at Northwestern? Who's a better player? And if they're graded the same, they're not the same player. We know this, right? So somebody has to see the horizontal board. And so what Curran's talking about is the horizontal board. And Perry's talking about, look, you got to get the quarterback. You may have to go over the horizontal board to, you have to forgive it to get the player that you want. Yet, as long as you have the verbiage to back it up. As long as you have the verbiage to back up what you're saying, then go ahead and do it. If you take Kyle, like when they took Ryan Tannehill with Miami, they had verbiage to support him. I didn't agree, I, I didn't agree with the verbiage. I didn't think he would be a top 10 at his position. Now, he's proven to be better than I thought he was going to be. I thought he was more an athlete than he was a quarterback, but it justified why they picked him there. Unless you can tell why to pick the player, it's very challenging. It's not, it's not as easy as I think that guy, we should pick that guy. So you've got to value the horizontal board really deeply. And there's only two or three people in an entire organization that know the horizontal board. And what's going to be available in the second round and who's valuable in the second and what the value is on that. So for the Patriots, to me, they're collecting data on all the quarterbacks. They're going to look at every player. You know, they'll spend time. And then as they value this, if they think they can move up to get a player that they have graded on their board high enough with all the draft picks they have, I'm sure they'll take a look at that. If they can't, they have to prepare to pick at 15. Who would we pick if we get stuck here? And then who would we pick if we move down? You've got to prepare for all different scenarios. If players X, Y, or Z are there at 10, do we go get them? If player is, if there are no players at 10 that we like, then we won't go. That's why it's a reactionary measure. And you've got to play these scenarios out. And there's really only one person in an organization that can play that. You know, everybody ha everybody wants to manage the draft on, on draft day, but few know the horizontal board. And if you don't know the horizontal board, you can't do that. And that's why it's so important, like you said, the vertical board versus the horizontal board. And this ties in perfectly with one of the great all-time picks, and it continues the theme of the New England Patriots, and that's Julian Edelman. A little over an hour after the Patriots terminated his contract due to a failed physical, historic career in pro football comes to end. He officially announced his retirement. Three Super Bowl rings, tough, a great return man, and one of Belichick's greatest draft picks in the seventh round. I mean, 
when you look at what his his story, Mike, is incredible. No scholarships at a high school, played quarterback at Kent State, didn't get a combine invite. I mentioned the seventh round. 11 years is one of Tom Brady's favorite receivers. 620 catches, 6,822 yards, three Super Bowls, and a Super Bowl MVP. And you can take us behind the scenes. What was it about Edelman that made him overcome the fact that no one apparently saw this coming? Well, I mean, he was the most one of the most competitive people you're ever going to see. And- and, and within that competitive spirit, which never died, he never got competitively tired. He never got tired of competing. He always had that giant chip on his shoulder that he wasn't drafted until the, the seventh round, that he didn't get a major scholarship out of high school. He didn't get a major scholarship out of junior college, that he had to go to Kent State. And, you know, that chip constantly wore, he wore that proudly on his shoulder. And he was always seeking improvement. I mean, I don't think there was a day that he wouldn't come up to me and say, what do you see? What did you see today? How did I, what did I do? What could I get better at? Constantly. Not because it was me. He did it to everybody. I mean, he was looking for ways to improve his craft and he never was satisfied. And I think that dedication, that commitment and the mental toughness that he, he played through so many injuries. I mean, you know, he played through so many injuries. He gave his heart and soul to the Patriots. He truly signifies what a Patriot player is. And, you know, he's had a tremendous career, you know, and he had 620 catches, 6,800 yards. He's three Super Bowl wins. And, and I think something that has to be considered as a Hall of Famer is the fact that he won an MVP of a Super Bowl. I mean, that's a hard thing for a receiver to do. But yet he was the difference in a lot of Super Bowls. We we don't beat we don't beat Seattle in forty nine without him. We don't beat Atlanta with that remarkable catch in in fifty one without him. And he wins the MVP in fifty three with without it. So like I mean this guy when the game was big when the game was big he played big. I mean you know when you sit there and you want to grade him, you know I mean he he clearly was. Uh, uh, he had an impact on the game, and he was a featured player on the team, and he determined the outcome of the game. So that he was picked in the seventh round, he played like he should have been picked in the top 50 picks in the draft, the top 20 players in the draft, because his verbiage, the way he played, he was one of the better players in his position with Pro Bowl talent. Yeah, would you have him, like top five draft pick by the Patriots all time, like at least in the era that the last 20 years? I mean, anytime you can, anytime you can get a second contract out of a seventh round pick at a, at a top level, I mean, that's an incredible pick. That's an incredible pick, and nobody gets credit for it because you just say you, everybody just assumes you got lucky. Well, part of the reason Edelman's so successful is the Patriots had a vision for him. He's a quarterback. They were going to make him a slot. They knew what they wanted to do with him. They were going to handle it accordingly, and he and he allowed them to develop him as a player. He allowed them. He allowed, he allowed them to make himself a better player. He bought into it. And so it's really what happens is when the player meets, when the scheme meets the player, when everything comes in order, then things happen perfectly. Yeah, everything certainly did work out well when it came to Edelman. Just remarkable career. There's no question about it. One quick thought, then we're going to take a break, come back with more Fix My Team. Cleveland Browns progressing in talks and a deal with Frazier pass rusher Jadeveon Clowney. Uh, optimism a deal could be reached soon. He had that one-year $13 million deal with the Titans. He struggled in 2020. This is a guy who's 28 years old. He had 19 tackles, zero sacks in eight games before suffering a season-ending knee injury in November. We know about his history, and I know he can be a terror on the field, Mike. He also gets hurt a ton. 
groin, elbow, back, Liz Frank injuries. Cleveland's a team on the rise. Great young defense. Would you add Clowney if you're the Browns? Well, I mean, I think really it's not add Clowney. It's it's do you would you add what's the salary? Tell me what the salary is because you can't go all in on you can't go all in on this. You just really can't. You can't go all in. You've got to be really diligent in in what you pay this player because he could easily get hurt again. And I think you have to structure the contract so that you know, and so that you could you know handle it. And the fact that he hasn't played well, I think he's got a degenerate knee problem. I think it's always going to be there. And so the reason he hasn't signed with anybody is I'm sure teams are offering him a contract. He has no interest in really playing. Uh, he wants to, he wants the money again, and he's always been able to get it. Since the time he was in high school, through college, through pros, he's always gotten what he's wanted. You know, nobody's told him no, and he's going to have to face a lot of no's. I can't see Cleveland's analytically; they see it. You know, would they pay him on a come deal? Absolutely. But they're not going to pay him like John Robinson paid him last year to come in there and and not prove that he can do that. You can't waste money in this tight of a cap. So, you know, I, I, I'm not a Clowney fan. I think Clowney's injuries prevent him from being a great player. He can't stay on the field. He's not durable. And he doesn't impact the game because, not because he's not talented or wasn't talented. He was tremendously talented and gifted. Just the injuries have beaten up his body. Yeah, and that's where the problem becomes. At 28 years old, you feel like he's 38 years old with the amount of injuries that he's had. I know 32 sacks in seven seasons, but amount of acclaim that he had coming out of college, people thought he was going to have bigger numbers and be a lot healthier than what he's been so far. After the break, NFL draft is two weeks away. We continue our ongoing Fix My Team and How Many Moves. The Vikings, the Raiders, the Cardinals do not go anywhere. All right, anytime you're on the golf course, you always hear the phrase, hit it long and hit it straight. Well, as somebody who's a novice to the game of golf, a new person, I wanted to make sure I had the best equipment possible. So... As a novice golfer, I went and hit up our friends over at PXG because they have an all-new driver called the Black Ops. I mean, my man Chris over in Henderson has hooked me up with a phenomenal driver that's built to my game. My new game that doesn't really do much of anything on the course, but it has what I need in terms of the club head speed and the kind of grip that I need to go out there and be the best to my ability. I mean, this is music to ears to any golfer, whether you're a novice like myself or if you've been playing the game for decades. The PXG Black Ops driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Op drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. That's just ridiculously high. So what you got to do, go check out the PXG Black Ops driver. You'll be as impressed with it as I am. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment at pxg.com slash gmshuffle and use code gmshuffle at checkout. That's pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle for free shipping on all equipment, pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle. From New Jersey, USA, it's Fix My Team and How Many Moves. And now, here are your hosts, Michael Lombardi and Adnan Berg. Fix My Team and How Many Moves, the Minnesota Vikings. 2019, 10-6, divisional round loss. 2020, a step obviously went in the wrong direction. 7-9, and nine, their worst record since Mike Zimmer took over in 2014. And now Ziggy Wolf's got decisions, the owner. They've got the 14th overall pick, a total of 11 picks overall, I think for me, Mike, just watching the Vikings this year, what was stunning to me 
was how you thought, you know what? Great defense. They've got enough offense. They'll be good. And they had a terrible start, never recovered. One in five start. They started to turn things around against the Packers, but eventually the Bears ended up dashing their hopes. I thought this was a team that was going to win the division and they were sub 500. Now, how do you fix them? Well, I think it starts with Zimmer fixing his defense. I mean, they were terrible against the run. They were one of the worst teams. I think they were the worst team in the NFL in allowing first downs to be converted on two downs. And so that's a problem. Their corner situation, you know, was was really challenging. Gladney's got some off-the-field issues that's got to get handled, whether he can come back or not. So, you know, they've got a lot of issues, and it starts up front. I mean, I think when you saw what they tried to do this offseason, they get Michael Pierce back you know, who was out last year with the, you know, COVID, he stepped off. That'll help their in-perimeter run defense. They signed Dalvin Tomlinson, which I think was one of the best signings. And, you know, they bring Patrick Peterson in. It's going to be interesting if 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 he can recover. You know, he had 14 penalties last year, the most penalized defensive back. He's always grabbing and holding. Look, when you watch defensive back, the number one thing you have to watch is balance. And the number one, number second, the second thing you really have to pay attention to is what they do with their hands. You know, a lot of teams will tape players' hands so they don't pull and grab when they're playing defensive back. Peterson got called way too much for this. And people are going to go after him. No one's going to be scared not to go after him. So I, I think it starts there. And then, you know, they don't want to get rid of Kirk Cousins. They, they don't want to, you know, eliminate that. They've gone so far into this with him in terms of money. And where they are as a football team, they have to go keep going down that road. And I think it's going to come down to how well their offensive line plays. I mean, the left tackle, Rashard Hills, they're starting left tackle. They've got to get a left tackle. This offensive line has been a problem really since Cousins has been there. They haven't been able to really fix it. So to me, it's defensive line, offensive line, and then the cornerback situation. But they've got some young corners. I, I thought the Danzler kid could be a good player. You know, they signed Mackenzie Alexander, whether they get something out of him. They still have Mike Hughes on the team. We'll see. But I think the reality of it is, is they got to fix this defensive line with power down the middle, and they've got to fix the left tackle position. All right, so that's the issue when it comes to Minnesota Vikings. Fix my team, and how many moves? How about the Arizona Cardinals? Kyler Murray, Cliff Kingsbury, they trade for DeAndre Hopkins. They were 6-3, and three, that Hail Mary catch by Hopkins. They beat the Bills in Week 10, 2-5 and five over their final seven games. They've missed the playoffs, the 8-8 eight and eight record. Now, obviously, the injury to Kyler Murray in Week 11 against Seahawks hurt them. They have scored 30 or more points only once the rest of the season. But having seen Cliff Kingsbury in college, Mike, this was always the knock. Hey, great offensively. What about your defense? So in how many moves can you fix the Arizona Cardinals? I think it's a little challenging on the Cardinals. I think you're going to have to really be, say, we got to keep our quarterback healthy. Because when you look at the last nine games of the season, you know, Kyler Murray averaged under seven yards per attempt. They're three and six the last nine games. Two of those wins came against the Giants and the Eagles, and then the Hail Mary pass. So the three wins that they had in the last nine games were really, one was really lucky. They really had lost. They won on a Hail Mary. And two, they beat a bad Giant team and bad Eagle team. So, you know, like how good are the, how good is Kyler Murray? Last year in the last nine games of the season, he averaged 5.74 yards per attempt on third down. He only had four plays over 25 yards in those nine games on third down. He completed 56% of his passes on third down, right? Throwing the ball outside the numbers, you think with this gun that he has, he would be great. When he throws it to his right, he averages 5'9". When he throws it to his left, he averages 7'1". I mean, this is a little man playing the position. I'm not against the mayor of Munchkinland at all. I think he's a talented player. He's fast as hell, but there's some liabilities that come with him, and they show up. I think he would benefit from being under center a little bit to separate the defense to allow him to have some easier throws. But that's not what they do in Cliff's offense. 
So you're not going to go against that. I, I just think to me, it's going to come down to what Murray is like the second eight games of the season. Is he healthy? Can he play healthy? Can he get through it? And then naturally, you know, I know they've got J.J. Watt. I know they got Chandler Jones. They're old on defense. You know, they Malcolm Butler's even over 30. They got Marcus Golden over 30. Are they going to be old enough and good enough? Now, I think they'll draft a corner because I think that's something they desperately need. So they got to fix the corner position. I think the Hudson trade gives them a year, but he's an older player. This is an older team a little bit with a young quarterback. You got to be really careful if they can stay healthy. Health of paramount importance because with that quarterback, as you said, the mayor of Munchkin land. With that being the case, Mike, so listen, 11 picks in the draft. Do you just beef up on your offensive line and say, okay, even if there's weaknesses elsewhere, I'd rather have maybe almost what Washington did with their defensive line. They've got so many guys that can rotate in and out. If you're Arizona, you go, listen, I'm not saying you're drafting an abundance of offensive linemen, but you do more of that perhaps than other teams. Well, I mean, they got to be able to make the team, right? So they got DJ Humphreys, a left tackle. Beecham's their right tackle. So you know I think they're going to probably pick a right tackle, whether Marcus Gilbert can play or not. You know, he was out last year with the COVID. And then their inside players. I've never have been a Brian Winters fan, even when he was at the Jets. They signed him to play right guard. Harrison Hudson will give them some power inside. Look, when you've got, when you've got Kyler Murray... You got to be really good at your guards and center. You got to keep the pocket clean because if he gets pressure inside, he's taking off and running. And that's going to lead to injuries. Remember, remember the great buddy Ryan line. There's a place in pro football for the little man. It's just not in front of the big man. <laughs> and that to me sums up Kyler Murray. I forgot that buddy Ryan line. What a funny line that is. Uh, all right, fixed by team. How many moves? We'll keep it moving with the Las Vegas Raiders. First year in Vegas, ups and downs. Thanks to COVID-19, they didn't get to play in front of their home fans. They still started the season 6-3, and three, their first nine games. I remember you and I were raving. Like, it was a Sunday night football game. And we go, man, you know what? Raiders got a little mojo going. Beat the Saints, beat the Chiefs, beat the Browns. But they went 2-5 and five over their final seven games. They end the year in an 8-8 eight and eight record and miss the playoffs. So, unlike the previous two teams we just discussed, who have a total of 11 picks in the draft, when you look at the Raiders, they have only eight picks in this draft. And in terms of the order and such... They do have a 17th overall, they have a 48th overall, but a few less picks to play with. So, how would you fix this with Mike Mayock and John Gruden, knowing full well, as you've told us, Gruden is the guy who has the final say? Well, I think it's all defense, right? I think they got to keep working on their defense. They got to get a corner that they feel can really shut down and cover. Arnett's not that guy. You know, is Mullen hasn't proven that. They're safeties. I mean, they brought back Carl Joseph. And so now with Abraham and Joseph, they're going to struggle to tackle. I, I think this is a critical draft for the for the Raiders in the sense of they've got to get the defensive front. And, and it may be you're going to have to force fit some defensive linemen. You know, and Dockway, they signed to be a rusher. Look, this is going to be about their defensive front. They they made Gus Bradley the defensive coordinator. And so it's not going to be a complex scheme. It's going to be a cover three, rush the passer up the field, and you've got to get guys that can do that. And I think that's where the draft is going to focus most of its attention on, and they've got to be able to hold up at the safety and tackle better. I mean, Abraham, look, Abraham's got to tackle better. Arnett, the draft first-round picks that they've had since John's been there, they're, you know, Farrell, number one overall, the first pick. They've got Mullen, who's a two. Abraham's a one. You know, Arnett's a one. Those guys got to come through for them, you know, and they've got to be able to have enough defensive linemen to rotate. You know, Crosby and Nassib. Those, Nassib, they paid a big amount of money to. Arden Key, who they drafted in 18 in the third round. So, 
I think this is all about their defensive front, defensive line. Offensively, look, they signed the James kid to an extension. They think he'll be a good center for them. Incognito and good are their guards. They're older players, but I'm sure they'll draft guys. They drafted Simpson in the fourth round from Clemson last year. I mean, offensively, right tackle's the only hole on their team, whether Brandon Parker, who they picked in the third round in 18, can come through. If they draft a receiver, I'll just shake my head. I don't understand why, but they, w- they probably will. But the reality of it is, is I think offensively, it's offensive line, and then all the attention should go defense. That's the story when it comes to Raiders and how Mike would fix them. When we come back, we will open up the GM Shuffle mailbag, discuss Kevin James playing Sean Payton for a new film, and we got to talk some Hemingway. That's next. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, the second round of the playoffs have been absolutely phenomenal, and if you really like a team, you can bet on them for the futures market, maybe some conference finals MVPs as the conference finals approach, or how about NBA finals MVP? And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet five bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code shuffle that's code shuffle for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just five bucks only on DraftKings the crown is yours gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia visit www.1800gambler.net in New York call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 in Connecticut help is available for problem gambling call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance, see dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Tony in Ireland wants to chime in here with the GM Shuffle mailbag. Hope you guys are all safe. How do you rate Jordan Love as a potential quarterback option for quarterback needy teams like Denver or Washington? How does he rate against the new crop about to enter the NFL? Would Green Bay trade him and what would he cost? Well, I mean, you know, drafting a quarterback in the bottom of the first round and then not playing him is like, you know, the depreciation of your car. As soon as you buy a brand new car, you take it off the lot, it goes down in value immediately. Well, that's Jordan Love. He's like that car you bought that's all of a sudden you paid 40000 for it and then you go to the blue book value after one year. It has no miles on it. It's still worth 32000 You lost eight grand right away, right? You don't understand how it happened, but you did. So there's really, you know, unless if they play him in the preseason this summer and he looks really good, then his value will go up and probably he could obviously get something back for him. But a lot of this is going to be dependent upon what people thought of him coming out in the draft. What was his draft grade? And what did we think of him? And where did we, what was the verbiage attached to the player? What did we see the player as? If you saw the player as a as a as a sixty nine, which I described earlier, as a player that can create mismatch for most opponents in the league, you got to give up your first round pick for him because you're going to get that. If you think he's a blue chip player, a player has rare abilities, you're going to give that. But if you saw this player as an adequate starter, maybe in the top twenty in his position, you're not going to give up a first round pick. So they're going to lose value on him. So I think a lot of it's going to the only way you can offset what the college grades were is by his pro performance. And unless you could see that pro performance, it's hard to convince people of that. 
That's the story when it comes to Jordan Love and the Packers. How about this story? Sean Payton's going to be betrayed by comic actor Kevin James in an upcoming Netflix movie titled Home Team. NBC's Peter King first reported it. Movie based on how Payton wound up serving as an assistant coach on his son Connor's sixth grade football team in the Dallas area while he was suspended by the NFL over Bounty Gate. Payton telling ESPN he believes the movie will have a humorous Adam Sandler spin, but more inspired by his real life experiences than an exact retelling. I never thought in my life, Mike, Kevin James looks like Sean Payton. I've met Kevin James, by the way. Nice guy. Obviously, King of Queens. Funny. Sean Payton looks a little like Frankie Muniz, who was the great actor Malcolm in the Middle, that kid. So there's obviously a, a big issue there in terms of age. You can't get Frankie to play him. But I never thought to meet Kevin James, Sean Payton. But again, it's a comedy. Should be interesting. Adam Sandler. Let's try to have some fun with it. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I've, been, I've been at Pebble Beach with Kevin James. He's a really interesting guy, good guy. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't have thought Sean, Sean Payton. He's got to lose a little weight to be Sean, I think, don't you think? I mean, to make it real. That was, I agree. That was my first thought. I'm like, hey, not to be a prick, but I'm like, how much weight does he have to lose to look like Sean Payton? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, if Kevin James was, you know, I mean, all due respect to Kevin James, I mean, I'm a fat guy. He could play me, but I mean, I didn't see Sean as a fat guy. But anyway, you know, I I, I think it's awesome. I think it'd be great to have uh, to see what what he was doing with Connor. You know, when I was when Sean was an assistant at the Eagles and he was an assistant at the Giants, he used to vacation here in in Ocean City. And one year, you know, one year we had a barbecue in the backyard. Uh, Millie and I, it was, you know, Sean, Aaron Cromer was there, Harbaugh, John, and I think John and Jim were both there. And, you know, and Connor was there. And he, he his nickname was Burger Boy because he would love burgers, you know. And so I've seen that kid grow up and it's remarkable. And it's, it's how time flies when, you know, you think you go from there and all of a sudden you've got all these people that have had such great success in their careers. It's kind of remarkable. So I look forward to watching it. As do I. You and I both loved watching Hemingway on PBS. I did a deep dive on Cinephile. I encourage people to check it out on Apple Podcasts. Talking about Hemingway, Mike is obviously a great writer, and I'm a guy who deeply admires Hemingway. How about this passage? Jeff Daniels does an amazing job voicing Ernest Hemingway in voiceover. It's six hours. I could have taken 60. But take a listen to this. This is Hemingway making a passage from a letter to his father. You see, I'm trying in all my stories to get the feeling of the actual life across, not to just depict life or to criticize it, but to actually make it alive. So when you have read something by me, you actually experience the thing. You can't do this without putting in the bad and the ugly as well as what is beautiful, because if it is all beautiful, you can't believe it. Things aren't that way. It is only by showing both sides, three dimensions, and if possible, four, that you can write the way I want to. And this style of his writing, again, we know about the, the brevity, the terse storytelling, the economy of words, how ruthlessly efficient he was. The fact that he used his personal life in his books, A Farewell to Arms, The Sun Also Rises, For Whom the Bell Tolls, stories about war and courage and bravery and love, but also the personal side. I mean, it's a fascinating documentary, Mike. As you and I have said before, if a guy is just a good guy, it's not interesting. But Hemingway is fascinating because he's not only a brilliant, influential writer, but also a tumultuous personal life. He was married four times. The stories of him and Gellhorn are unbelievable. He calls her a conceited bitch and says that, you know, they'll be reading my stuff long after the worms are eating you. He's got three kids, one of whose kids ends up being arrested for dressing in women's clothing in a movie theater. She eventually, you know, uh, is a trans woman. Uh, the fact that Hemingway himself was drawn to androgyny. He would role play in the bedroom and say, okay, call me a, a woman's name. And I mean, they, they were fascinating documentary. There's so many different places to this, but I thought it was incredible. You? Yeah. I, I thought, I thought it was really interesting. It's got a little bit, it got a little depressing at the end, especially when he was going through that John Nash experience where he was thinking everybody was against them and they were stealing money from his bank account. I thought the Finca Vega 
uh, the, the home in, in Cuba, the way they have left that home exactly the way he left it with all his with all his items still there, the royal typewriter against the, you know, he used to type, he used to write it standing up because it was too painful. I thought his discipline was remarkable to get up at sunlight and start writing until lunch every single day was remarkable to me. And I think he did live life. And I think he saw writing as more musical than he did verbs. Uh, than verbiage. I think he wanted the commas to be the the orchestra's pauses. There's very much of a Burt Bacharach sense in the way he was writing, in the flow of it, and the pauses and the paces into what he did and his simplicity. And But yet the experiences of what he felt, he was able to put on the piece of paper and describe it. And I think that that made him and also was his enemy. I think there's always those things in life that what makes you great can make you weak as well. And eventually the alcoholism got to him and and his life became really so kind of depressing at the end. You know what I found interesting for a man that had so much impatience with love that he would go from one love to the next, but instead of instead of trying to see if it was going to work out, he went like all in and got married. Like he never really took a pause. Like, you know, the whole relationship between his first wife and his second wife, how he was going to take the hundred days to decide who he wanted to stay with, you know, like that was fascinating, you know? And then, you know, and then he went from his second wife to Gallon, you know, and that happened at boom. And you, and then, from Gallon to his fourth wife. I mean, there was like no has, and immediately he's writing how he wants to be married to him. I mean, I thought that was his his all or nothing was remarkable. Yeah, there was a real sense of romanticism to him, like for such a masculine man's man, a guy who loves hunting and fishing, and the pictures of him are like rhinos and lions and, you know, obviously the deep sea fishing. But at the same time, it's contrasted with, like you said, a real sense of sentimentality, of romanticism. I mean, some of those letters he's writing to his wife, like, oh my God, it's beautiful how much he's just so in love with these women. And then, of course, there's the verbal abuse and the cruelty that comes with it. Um, but a guy who had a real sensitivity to him, right? Lonely at times, couldn't sleep without the light on, couldn't sleep without somebody with him because of what he faced in the war. So it's there's lots of fascinating contradictions to this guy who you think that you figured it out. But in terms of his writing, Mike, is there a favorite of yours? I, I'll admit, on the flight this week, I was I went back, I, I grabbed my Hemingway Reader, and I reread uh, The Short Happy Life of Francis McComber. I reread The Snows of Kilimanjaro. I read some passages from A Farewell to Arms. Like it, It's very rare that you and I watch a documentary and go, man, I got to go read. But that's what this documentary makes me feel like doing. Yeah, AD, I, I love reading him. I love the A.E. Hockner stuff. I love to read about Hemingway and how he thought. Hockner does a great job. He does a great job with Paul Newman talking about his life. He does a great job with Hemingway. But I, I just, you know, read The Old Man in the Sea last summer, For Whom the Bell Tolls. I think when you type one of his paragraphs, it makes you feel like you're a really good writer. I'm not a really good writer, but when you type a paragraph of his, something Ryan Holiday told me you should do once you before you start writing is to type a really good paragraph to feel it. I think that really helps. That's interesting to say, because it's right. When you look at his style, I want to also say, often imitated, never duplicated, right? How many people have tried that terse style, tough talk, and it's like, no, you're just being an imposter. You can't really be Hemingway unless you are that guy, but there must be something to said for actually trying that. But I agree, the diligence and the discipline. I mean, he wrote 47 versions of A Farewell to Arms, and the stuff with his parents, I mean, as you said, the alcoholism, but also the mental illness, the fact that, like, you know, he might have had CTE. I mean, he suffered multiple concussions, all those wounds in the war. 
war. The fact he called his father a coward, then later on committed suicide himself. And I thought one of the best lines was by Tobias Wolf, the writer who said, he changed all the furniture in the room and now we've all got to sit in it. Yeah, I think that was awesome. And and I think, you know, look, he he came from a family of six kids, him included, and his parents, there's eight and four of them committed suicide. So there's something hereditary in that, right? I mean, you know, and 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 he has grown in legend from because of his willingness to just to, to go safari hunting and to really explore the world. And, you know, I, I want to go see the house in Key West. I would love to see the house in Cuba, uh, you know, and the Ketchum house is is still, you can go tour the Ketchum house where he shot himself. It's still there. And, and the places, it's remarkable what Hemingway has done for the economy, not counting Cuba, had the Cubans not gone under dictatorship, I'm sure it would be just booming like crazy. But think about it. You can't buy a house and catch them. Key West is ridiculously expensive. I mean, the guy knew real estate before real estate, right? <laughs> like, this is a guy you wanted to get on board with, right? Like, hey, Ernie, you know, where are you thinking about buying your next house? And then you go buy it there because it's going to go up in value. <laughs> well, it's so funny you said that. Years ago, my wife and it was just a couple of my kids at the time, we did a you know cruise and we went to Key West and I said, I want to see the Hemingway house. And it's amazing. The tour guide was awesome. Like, a lot of of the stuff he was saying was in the documentary, which was, as you mentioned, he'd get up at 7 a.m. By the way, you couldn't go in the actual room where he wrote. We actually take pictures outside, but it was almost like a bridge. Like it was almost like a separate part of his house, but like he has his home. He'd get up at 7 a.m. He'd write 700 words or lunch, which everyone came first. And those 700 words were like painstakingly done. And then he'd just, you know, go hang out with his family. He'd go fishing. And then at night, go to the bar. We get to see the bar we would go to, get drunk, fight a few people. The tour guide said he was a bit of a bully. He'd always pick on the guy who was more drunk than him, throw a few punches, repeat process. But to your point, like he was a rabble rouser, but very disciplined in what he was doing. And just seeing the house, I mean, you're right. As soon as I say the words Key West, right away people go, oh, Hemingway, did you see the Hemingway house? So think about this. The guy could write in heat. I mean, that's a hard thing to do. Sweating your ass off, you know, <laughs> writing there and the Key West and Cuba with the humidity. I mean, that's all I kept thinking about. Like, where's the air conditioner, Ernie? Like, can you turn that baby up? <laughs> I I also like the fact you've now called him Ernie twice because that was my thought. I'm like, do his buddies call him Ernie? But a, a couple of times, like F. Scott Fitzgerald called him Hem. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm like, if I had a buddy named Ernest Hemway, I'm calling him Ernie every single time. Like, What's up, Ernie? How we doing? Hey, Ern, I'd call him E-H, E-H, you know, E-H, E-H. Let's go. Let's go. We, we, got, we got to go, you know. <laughs> All right, last point. It's a lot of people were tweeting uh, my debut on WWE's Monday Night Raw. The main thing I want to tell everybody here is I'm not leaving the shuffle. There's no way you're getting rid of me. Me and Lombardi are in this for the long haul. So uh, we are not going anywhere. The shuffle continues, but it was a really cool opportunity and I'm going to continue with it, but I'm I'm not losing any of my gigs here. I'll be on MLB Network and NHL Network and uh, Cinephile and and all the rest of it. So it was definitely really cool, Mike. As a kid who grew up watching wrestling and, uh, you know, being a part of the action, it was just surreal. Like I just, I, I, as I said in the article that Richard Deitch did on me, if I could have told my 10-year-old self, hey, one day you'll be doing this, I mean, I'd be screaming with glee. So I, it brought back a lot of memories for me with me and my brother watching wrestling together and actually being there. But it's it's a sophisticated product. It's a very serious product. Everyone takes it seriously. Um, the wrestlers are in incredible shape. Like from a sports perspective, I'm like, I, I was there watching wrestling WrestleMania, and I said, okay, man, I know it's scripted, but these guys are athletes. Like These moves that they're doing are complicated and difficult. And when you see it up close and personal, I uh, certainly have much respect for the entire operation. So thanks to everybody who listened, and uh, it was fun. 
Congratulations. I'm proud of you. I, I think it's awesome. I think it's a great opportunity to show your talents in other fields and and enjoy it. I mean, look, as a kid, I grew up watching wrestling and and Vince McMahon Sr. was the ones that that wrestling was on, on on Channel 17, I think, here in Philadelphia when I was a kid. And Bruno Sammartino was the champion. George the Animal Steel with the hairiest back I've ever seen in my <laughs> life come in the screen. I could never understand how Andre the Giant wasn't the champion since he was the biggest bastard I've ever seen in my life. Like how little... Five nine Bruno San Martino could beat him, but I, I kind of got worked my way through that. But congratulations, I'm happy for you. And yeah, you're you know you're 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 not going anywhere. We need you on the shuffle. No, I appreciate you, man. Always. And you're right. Part of the fun is talking about those old school wrestlers. I look forward to getting some of those stories, and I'll be uh, I'll be texting you about Jesse, the Body Ventura, and obviously the Hulkamaniacs and all the rest of it. But you're right about the the hairy back there. All these guys are definitely waxing now. It's a it's a different world right now we live in. Thanks so much for checking out the GM Shuffle. Uh, we did a lot today. Hopefully you enjoyed the NFL content. We'll continue. The draft is right around the corner, so make sure you check out Mike's work on Twitter, MLombardiNFL. You can follow me as well, Adnan S. Ferk, and you can follow our show's Instagram page at the GM Shuffle. Hour in the books. We'll talk to you next time.